Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. What's up, everybody? We have just been discussing the fact that there may be a correlation. There probably is. We just don't know it. I don't know. We got to do some more research about barometric pressure and the way humans act and the way deer act and probably a lot of things in nature and creation out there act. Eric and Mark apparently have been feeling rather sluggish this week. We've had a, what did you say it was? We've had a stagnant, low-pressure front hanging over us here in the upper Midwest. Is this something you guys frequently check? I got to say, the last time I checked Barrow uh, was... Barrow, Alaska? Never ago. So, okay, so here... I check it daily during the fall. Right. So So here's how this came up. I've made, over time, observations at work. Yes. Where maybe on a certain day, you see like a group of people who generally, they eat about noon. Now, I'm not watching people all the time. These are, these are general observations. But I'll see on a certain day, all of a sudden, everybody's super hungry at 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. And actually, what I didn't do, Eric, though, was actually check the barometric trip. Right. Barometric, but it's just something that kind of like occurred. It was just an observation. There's different or, ebbs and flows of behavior. Right. And then Sawyer and Eric and I were just talking. We're all super sluggish today. Nobody really has a valid reason why. Nobody was staying up late last night. Nobody had a super heavy meal 10 minutes ago. And yet we're all just a little bit slow on the draw, just sluggish, Yep. tired. Eric, like you said, just let Let out the world's longest yawn. Yeah, it was incredibly long. I've never seen anything like it. But let me ask you this. What's your guys' coffee schedule been like today? Because myself, I never drink coffee. We're discussing this. Brittany's also a person who never drinks coffee. Yeah, Neither does really? MC Ryan. So MC Ryan and Brittany, have you guys been feeling particularly sluggish today? Oh, okay. Brittany's Look at nodding in, in agreement. MC Ryan, how are you feeling today? He's feeling fine, he says. Well, okay, but that's MC Ryan. Let's be honest. The I- man... <laughs> He well-oiled machine likely might be a CIA. I was gonna say man, computer, some I'm kind still of NSA not. government special <laughs> created robot. You so, ever see that show Small Wonder? No, that's a good show. Anyway, the daughter was a robot. I've been watching a lot of Stranger Things lately. Mm. Ryan might be. Oh my gosh, what if he's twelve? Oh wow! I haven't watched enough far yep. enough into Stranger Things to know if they find a twelve. But uh, stay, they did, stay tuned. Be, stay tuned. Ryan. I think you're well, in season one yet. Maybe he's thirteen. I'm just starting to. Yeah. On that note, speaking of Stranger Things and whitetail behavior with barometric pressure and fall, we're going to discuss hunting. You always know we got to get around to hunting or shooting at some point in these podcasts. But we had a message come in on Instagram, and this is from at the Buckshot. Shot with a zero, no spaces, no underscores, nothing. At the Buckshot, let me see if if you're listening right now. Buck Dudley on Instagram asked us, Hey, I have a question for an episode. Have you ever covered the topic of transitioning from Western hunting to Midwestern hunting? Where do you start? Is the gear similar? Things like that. This is a phenomenal question, I think, and it was somewhat of a revelation to me when I read it because I realized that a lot of what we speak to is the opposite transition. Mm -hmm. People who are on the eastern half of the Mississippi in this country venturing over into the western half of this country as split by the Mississippi River and hunting something on more of a an aspirational, big, adventurous, you know, kind of means elk, mule deer, 
you know, maybe even so much as Alaska, moose and caribou, or just doing something big and grandiose like Mm -hmm. that. And that's what gets talked about a ton. But the Midwestern hunting side of things, not as much. And especially the transition, if you are somebody more used to that Western hunting lifestyle, over to the Midwest or the East Coast, Yep, that kind of hunting. And I think that in many ways, because the conversation is always revolving around, I would say, people out in the West hunting Western stuff or people going over to get into Western huntings, do their first Western hunt, big adventurous hunt, which is a very worthwhile topic to discuss. But because that's talked about far more, I think people think that hunting east of the Mississippi just must be easy. You must just throw on your overalls and a couple of muck boots grab your old 30-06, and just pick any old tree in the woods, sit in it, and then the deer just come. And blouch, 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 shoot as many as you can see, mm-hmm. and head back and have a fish fry and eat some venison. I don't know. No, I think you're right, Jim. I think there are some misconceptions there as far as, like, you know, what goes into a whitetail hunt, the difficulty, the strategy, yep. uh, the equipment, which I think we're going to get into all these topics here pretty soon. And I think, you know, another thing that, you talk about from west going east. I think no matter where you're at, I, th- I think you're curious about other places as a hunter. At least I know I am, right? Mm-hmm. I think there can be a little bit of a grass is greener element going on there. So, you know, where if you live in the Midwest, you know, you're looking, oh, I want to do something over here that's yep. new and, you know, maybe vice versa. And one thing that popped in my head while we're sitting here would be like a job transfer. You know, maybe you're from Montana, but the right job came up, or maybe you got relocated, and bam, you're plunked into the Midwest. You still want to hunt. Right. Yeah, Got totally. to figure it out. So that's what we're going to chat about here a little bit. We have Eric with us. Uh, Jimmy speaking here. Eric is joining us. He is Midwest whitetail hunter extraordinaire. Yes. We have Mark, who himself has done a little bit of a West to Midwest transfer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh you've made your way over in in steps because you started out in washington state then you moved to nebraska mm-hmm. and now you're in the homeland of wisconsin yes sir the dairy land so we're going to draw <laughs> on you and also the fact that you've gone on western hunts from alaska to utah to the southwest to montana the dakotas you you've gone all over mm-hmm. we're going to draw on some of your experience as well to discuss some of these tactics that maybe people are used to employing, gear that they're used to employing, and all that other stuff out west that might be the same or might come around to bite you in the butt if you try to use it the same way or do it the same way in the Midwest. Where does one start, though? Somebody who's somebody who's out there out west and they're going to be coming over, like you said, maybe job, maybe just on a whim, maybe a, a family member brought them over to the Midwest – where do they got to start to even hunting around here? I mean, is it like, I, I guess I'm even you, thinking as far as what to hunt, when to hunt it, mm-hmm. what, where are you getting the tags from, all that stuff. You mind if I field this one, Eric? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'll use when I moved to Wisconsin in particular, right? Because, I mean, we had some, some pretty solid public land out in Nebraska. But when I moved to Wisconsin, my perception was absolutely every piece of huntable land or, or huntable land worthwhile was locked up in private. And yeah. I was either going to have to uh, know somebody, uh, you know, family, uh, get a lease, knock use connections, a knock yep. on a lot of doors if I was going to get a place to hunt. And, th- and so that's kind of what I focused on the first couple of years. And I hunted a little bit of public along along with that. But 
I mean, I'll tell you, and I think I've even mentioned this before, what really opened my eyes to knowing that that wasn't necessarily the case. I think, don't get me wrong, the land out here, I'm going to backtrack, the land out here is, is very compartmentalized. There yeah. is a lot of private land ownership. Um, I think there's other states that are similar to Wisconsin. Yeah. where You're talking um, about the heartland where like a gigantic percentage of our nation's exactly. like corn and food and and yep. dairy products all come out of so and where a, a lot of, of farms and where a lot of people live too. Ton yep. of people as yep. well, yeah. Yep. So I mean, you're looking at a lot of pieces of land. You got twelves, forties, hundred acres, three hundred acres is probably a pretty darn big oh, chunk yeah. of private land. Yeah. And so anyway, like I said, that was a little bit of a misconception. Uh, once I got Onyx, that actually really opened my eyes into being able to uh, scout from home and then kind of go verify. I know you do a lot of that too, mm-hmm. Eric. Maybe you can. You'd probably speak to this, you know, even better than I can, but. Where I'm going, you got to find a place. You got to have a place to hunt. Yeah. So whether it's public or private, you got to have the place. Sometimes easier said than done out here, but for sure, very doable yeah. with a little bit of research. Even growing up in Wisconsin my whole life, I remember thinking to myself the same thing that you thought. I remember thinking, hearing people talk about hunting public land, I was like, yeah, that's a Western thing. Not going to happen here. Right. And then I got Onyx and I you know, started mm-hmm. looking around. You start just looking for those blue or green or yellow patches. Yep. And I realized they're small and they're, you know, sporadically placed a lot of times. They don't always connect up mm-hmm. nicely or you don't always get. I remember the first time I saw that. Uh, uh, is it the Wyoming checkerboard? Or is yeah. It the, yeah. I remember yeah. the first time yeah. I saw that. I was like, whoa, whoa. that's crazy. crazy. Yeah. That's, but, a, that's its own issue. Right. Mm. But some of the other, you know, as you go out there, you see these gigantic expanses. But around here, it's you'll find here's a hundred acre piece here. And yeah. then just southwest, twenty miles, is another hundred acre piece. And then over here, there's a sixty acre spot, and you can start connecting them. But even still, there's also some relatively some relatively bigger spots too. Yeah. I, I remember just being like, I'm actually surrounded by public spots. Right. Yeah. Well, and I'd say this, you know, just because it's small doesn't mean it's not a good spot, and just because it's big doesn't, doesn't mean, mean it's that it's that it's a great spot. Right. And I'll go back to another misconception when I got here was that yeah, there's some public, but it's probably junk. Maybe yep. I'm not going to find deer on it. It's going to be, you know, super pounded, tons people of pressure, everywhere. people everywhere, which not entirely untrue, particularly yeah. at certain times. And not and entirely a bad thing. Especially in yeah. some spots, too. Certain, you know, certain spots definitely get hammered more than others. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I'd start with finding a place. So yeah. doing a lot of scouting as far as locations and stuff like that. Where do we go? I mean, next up, you got to think, so what are people hunting in the Midwest a lot? And Midwest and... I, we'll lump in East Coast. I got to admit, I don't know a whole lot about the East Coast, but I usually just assume it's very similar in it some is. ways. Unle- until you get up to the Northeast, probably, because then, then you're, start, you're talking about moose mountains. again. You're talking about mountains. Yep. That that would be an interesting podcast in and of itself to get somebody from yeah. one of the Hampshires or something like that. Ooh, yeah, I got a guy. You got a guy. Yep. All right. Well, anyway. I'm we, excited because that's like, I mean, I think Wisconsin's probably about as far east as I've gotten, actually. Yeah. So what are people hunting? You know, is the only thing to hunt around here white-tailed deer? I mean, from a big game perspective? It's definitely the most sought after. Yeah. yeah. Deer and turkey. And I think the majority, I, I mean, the majority of the listeners that are, you know, listening to this right now probably aren't going to make a trip in, out to the Midwest to go after pheasants. I mean, or... Well, that's fair. Or, Again, we're right. thinking, though, maybe somebody literally got transplanted. Yeah, right? yeah. So I, I, I would say, like, deer and turkey are going to be the most sought after. I mean, there's definitely, like, other small game stuff like that. But, mm-hmm. if, you know, I think the most of the stuff that we were kind of looking at is, uh, as far as, like, comparing, is going to be deer-based, mm-hmm. you know, like right. white, white-tail-based. Yeah. 
And there's going to be, you know, exceptions to that. Like, yeah. yeah, there's opportunities for elk in Kentucky, but, you know, yep. very limited. I mean, by and large, within reach of a person who either, like you said, has moved here, yep. transplant. There's or some opportunities for elk in Wisconsin now, too. Yep. And bear. Even more limited. Yep. Yeah. But, but, yeah, in very limited numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're mostly talking... White we're talking tails. White tails. about yeah. whitetails here. Yeah, and it, small game hunting can be quite fun. Right, and I think it's also worth noting too that like a lot of these guys that might be living out west, and I mean Eric Chesser, we were just talking to him. This is a guy that lives out out west, huge big game hunter out there. His bucket list thing for this fall is he wants to shoot a whitetail out of a tree stand in the Midwest. Right. So I think it's worth noting, too, that a lot of people who might, you know, just like us, we live in the Midwest, and and for a lot of my friends that are into, into hunting, they're dreaming of, like, going out west chasing elk or something like that. Where I think a lot of people out west, it's, the grass is always greener. We already mentioned yeah. that. People might want to, oh, man, I've never shot a whitetail. I'd really like to go to the Midwest. Because yep. the Midwest is the, the whitetail belt of the United States. So they kind of put a big radar on Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, Missouri. And they had east to, you know, fulfill mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So. All right, I don't know if we're are we moving at a good pace, or should we get right into like tactics and gear and stuff, or what else should be mentioned before you you know you you find yourself here? Because I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of a of an out of towner who shows up and they just kind of wondering like how do I even like where am I going? You know, well I we did address where do you go? Onyx is going to be a huge help to you and just scouting out spots, driving around. That's going to be a huge help, and you know this is something that Eric and I talk about a fair amount. Is you're probably gonna if you've paid attention to any whitetail mainstream whitetail yes. media, you're probably gonna have to overcome some or, some misconceptions you yeah. built up over time as to what's realistic when you're looking at chasing whitetail deer. Because I'd say, oftentimes, particularly if you're not going uh, to a place that's you know uh, uh, managed heavily, yep. or or you don't have uh, you know a family member that's doing that sort of thing. That's probably not a realistic portrayal of what you're going yeah. to encounter. Yep. Oh, I, I get what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you'll see yeah. a lot of guys out there. Like, the, your average whitetail hunt that gets portrayed in the mainstream media is someone who hunts very conservatively. You might hear that person talk about, I don't go into this spot because I don't want to spook these deer. Mm-hmm. They might be walking to a pre-hung stand. They bring in a little fanny pack or something really small that maybe has a knife, a, a pair of rattling antlers, and a grunt call in it, and minimal gear. Walk into the stand fully dressed, and then they plop themselves down ready to go. Stands pre-hung. Exactly. When in reality, like if you're talking about a DIY type adventure where you you know you're coming out here, you're you know let's just assume someone's coming out to the Midwest. They're chasing whitetails and they're predominantly hunting public land or on permission type stuff. They're not going to have a stand already hung. So you got to think about, you know, bringing that stand in, finding the place to to hang it and all the stuff, which we're going to get into that factors into that system. Cause I think when you really start peeling back the layers there, there's a really dialed system on the inside that is going to correlate directly to your success and, you know, feasibility to do those things. Right. So, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Should we dive right into that? Like, I, Yeah, I think so. Right. I think that's a really good place dive to start. In. So I, I was actually just listening to a podcast similar to kind of what we're talking about right now by Tony Peterson. He has like the Hunt for Real podcast, and he does some really cool stuff where it's predominantly focused on DIY hunting. And he summed up whitetail hunting. DIY whitetail hunting is cautiously aggressive, and I think that's a great yep. way, way to think about it. 
For example, we talked about the, the misconceptions there of walking into a spot that overlooks a food plot, has a stand or a box blind or something like that. That's not going to be the case for the people that are coming out here and doing that. So, you know, we've heard a lot of misconceptions about like, oh, whitetail hunting, you just walk in there, you sit down, and you're good to go. Yep. Not necessarily going to be the case. I mean, it's definitely a more stationary hunt than, let's say, you're throwing camp on your back and going after elk in the backcountry, but... I would argue that the stationary part of whitetail hunting is only the icing that goes on top of the cake. And that's, there's a ton of stuff that goes into that on the front end, like walking in, finding the spot, finding where to hunt, reading the sign. You're, you're moving and, and bringing yourself into this spot, and then you got to take a map that might be several hundred acres and find a spot to sit. Are you doing a lot of the, you're, you're explaining walking in, finding the spot, finding where you're going to hang your stand? I, the actual uh, uh, option or idea or action of hanging the stand itself, or maybe you're bringing out a saddle, so maybe you can just get up in a saddle or mm. something like that. Are you doing that all the same day of the actual hunt, or is that all happening? Because to, to me, what it seems like, and I don't want to already start summing it up before we've even really gotten into the meat of it, but it seems like a lot, it's always a chess match, right? A, yeah. a game of strategy, a game of different, you know, something that doesn't want to be killed. Yep. moving around, really trying to avoid being killed, and mm-hmm. then you are something out there that is, and I know, again, it's a visceral term, but you're out there trying to kill it. Let's mm-hmm. just admit that, right? For good intentions, good reasons, all that stuff, but you're out there trying to kill it. So it's two things that went opposite, re- like things to happen. Right. They Yeah, you definitely want uh, a different outcome. Right. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so I feel like a lot of that, that chess match and the strategy in these places happens all on the front end, or almost all on the front end. Mm-hmm. I, I look at it as like there's two chess matches going on almost like back-to-back. You have this entire hunt that goes into where you're going to start hunting. Yeah. So you've got your aerial scouting, your boots on the ground. Uh, aerial via maps and stuff. Aerial right? yep. via maps. Um, your boots on the ground, stuff that maybe you've done prior to the season. Yep. And then, you know, your woodsmanship going into the hunt. Right. Yep. As far as reading sign, when you get there, sometimes you don't have a ton of luxury if you're going in the dark in the morning. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there's just so much that goes into it. The time of the year, right? That's going to dictate where you might set up. You know, yep. I mean, we talk to the THP guys a lot, and people, you know, they talk about the October lull, right? And it's like, well, the deer aren't necessarily unkillable. You just got to get a lot tighter. So then yep. it's just so the time of year comes into a play. Yeah, definitely. You know, and, and another thing with that, as you mentioned, kind of like the October lull, you know, if you want to take it a step further and think about like when to hunt, you know, obviously the rut falls in the early part of November. That's when deer are the most active. But, you know, like you just mentioned the October lull, a lot of people, you know, and I do think there is like deer definitely are not as active in October as they are during the rut. But you take an 80 degree crappy day in October, in the middle of October, I guarantee that public land parking lot's going to be empty. I know. And you're going to have that to yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's why a lot of guys look at those less than desirable days and they think like, ah, this is the time I'm going to catch up on my honeydew list, you know, before the rut, you know, which is, there's definitely something to be said for that if you do have a lot of stuff to do. But If if, the option is to either or, or it's I either do this or I do that, Yeah, you know, then you might choose the one where you have a potentially better shot. But if it's, well, I could go this and then also later. Definitely then don't overlook it because those are the days where you're going to be able to get out there and you'll have 
those spots all to yourself. You'll be able to try different techniques. Let's say you wanted to glass a spot and, and deploy some of these Western tactics, like sitting up on a hill and trying to watch deer come out of a CRP field and maybe make a move on them and cut them off. That's, those are the times, I think, where you can start trying some of those more unconventional yeah. whitetail tactics. Well, I think, yeah, unconventional slash, you know, maybe... Uh, I guess right, wrong, or otherwise, but particularly if you're coming from out of state, you've got a limited amount of t- a limited amount of time. But hopefully, you've done a lot of pre scouting where you have a lot of spots picked out that yep. you can explore. You can be aggressive. And Eric, I mean, you might know. I mean, you or I should say, you would know better than I. But like, let's say you were hunting October. We'll say the mm-hmm. maybe the third week of October, not even the last week of October, yep. where those deer are less. You know, they're not on their feet. You know as much as they would be during the run, yeah, I should yeah. say. Is that a time where, like, if you were going to focus on getting into a, where a deer was bedded, right, you're going to have to get pretty tight to where that deer yep. is bedded. But that, does that also help you narrow down where that deer might be? Like, are you eliminating a lot of places where you might actually go hunt during the rut? Yeah, definitely. Because during the rut, you can definitely bump into random movement. But during October and September, you know, you're looking, you're trying to get to those really specific core areas where deer is going to be bedded. And a lot of that is just like, you look at them, if you're looking at this from a map perspective, you find a spot that, you know, okay, this looks like it has some terrain, some stuff where, where it could work for deer to be there. And you're taking a lot, like 90% of that map and throwing it away, you know, and you're focusing on those super small core areas. So yeah, I definitely think that you're kind of throwing away you know, real estate in order to get to a very small specific chunk because you're, you're, that's, that's the area where you suspect deer to be. What do those spots look like to you when you're looking at it on a map where you think, yeah, there could be, or there is more likely to be, or this seems like a good spot if I root deer to be their beds? Cause I hear a lot of times yeah. the, the hunting public, that's also, you know, when Mark says THB, it's the hunting public, uh, who does a lot of Midwestern hunting stuff. You hear them talking about finding beds all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I hear people talk about finding beds a lot. Yeah. And they're especially talking about whitetail in the Midwest area. Yeah. What are those characteristics and qualities about aerial scouting and then boots on the ground scouting that you're looking at yep. to find those kind of spots? So I think it varies on the terrain. And I'll, like I think we'll go over we'll go over hill country and we'll go over far, like flat farm country because I mm-hmm. think those are the most common. Mm-hmm. So hill country, like what I would be looking for is a spot where a deer can have some elevation. It can be bedded on the upper third of a ridge, have a, a prevailing wind. Let's So in, in the Midwest, that would be a northwesterly wind blowing over the top of it. And Does then, that mean, this is a dumb question, does that mean it's coming from coming, the northwest? Yep. Okay. Coming out of the northwest, going southeast. So that deer... In my opinion, and I think a lot of people kind of mm-hmm. have different ideas here, but but I think a mature buck wants to bed with its back into the wind, so the wind is coming up over it, like cooking over that ridge, and then it can smell anything that would be approaching upwind of it. And then because it's on a hill, you know, it's got a big vantage point where it can look down. So mm-hmm. it's got almost 360 degrees of protection yeah. there. Its nose is the eyes in the back of its head, exactly. and its eyes are the eyes in the front yep. of its head. And then I think if you, you know, reverse that to, like, flat farm country, I'm thinking, like, really f- areas where it's lots of fields, maybe a couple fence rows, you're going to look at spots where maybe there's a pond and just a real subtle change in habitat, like a fence row, and it's really the same thing. You know, like, a, if, let's say it's bedded up to a pond that's on the backside of a field surrounded by tall grass, 
that deer would watch. I think deer watch access, like access trails, where it finds that people frequent or any other predators. So I think they usually bed so they can look at that because they know where those visually are, so they can watch them. And then I think they set themselves up in a way where they can smell any kind of threat from the upwind side. Yep, I've only f- I found a couple buck beds where I literally am like, I think this deer is unkillable, mm-hmm. and that's why. That bed is there. I'm talking like a single bed, dished out, used probably over years. Yeah. And like, I'm looking like, and just the way the public abuts the private and how you'd have to get, you. it's why they're there. Yeah, definitely. It's, yeah. Let's throw uh, river bottoms in there, Eric. Yeah. So that's another good one because you have, when you look at a river on a map, it, it no river is just straight as an arrow you know it, it bends and turns and usually has little tributaries and like oxbows and stuff I don't know I'd be curious what your thoughts are there but I think you know if you look at those oxbows that's where a lot of deer are going to bed and then part of the reasoning for that is because they can pretty much rule out anything just popping up over a creek bank you know like it's not like every person is accessing from the river which we'll get into that because yeah. I think that's a great way we're actually going to do that here in a few months and i think stay tuned yes yeah, stay tuned little tease but hunting from like using water to access stuff i think is a great way to do that but you know if, if we're talking about how deer bed in those those areas i think they do tend to stay towards those oxbows because they can rule out you know air quotes something coming from the river mm-hmm. keep mm-hmm. their back to that and then watch out into a flat river river bottoms are flat you know you could put a level on it and it would be perfectly plumb and so they can see for forever in most cases so they'll bed with water to their back looking out into the flat river bottom i think that makes sense because every time i've hunted a river bottom where actually i generally access from the non-water side Mm -hmm. by and large the deer are always coming from closer to the river yeah yep one thing i've also noticed actually in rivers and this doesn't really go into bedding it's more of well excuse me it does go into bedding the river bottoms that at least I've hunted have been relatively flat. And like I said, th- there's people that know a lot more about this than mm-hmm. I do. But where there are maybe slight terrain features, where maybe there's actually almost like, I mean, and I'm talking like maybe three feet, yeah. but it's almost like a ridge, just like a, a contour line that runs throughout. There's like a beaten trail just on that little contour yep. line. It could be as much as a couple down trees that were uprooted in a windstorm. And then there could be a trail right in the backside of those because they're using just that little subtle change in visual barrier or elevation, like you mm-hmm. said. Even Very much is. edge creatures. Yeah, definitely. Yep. I can jive with that, though. I always like clean edges. And I just like, yeah. You know. So there's, there's my uh, river bottom tip. Actually, although there might be not very many contour lines. If look, you find one. If you find some, there's likely to be some sort of something there. Yep. When you find a bed so i you know i hear people talk about that they stumbled upon a bed what what do you do at that point like you said oh i walked up and here's a buck bed and that, that's where i hear a lot of people's stories trail off because yeah. it's like oh look i found this bed i don't know at that point then what they're doing about it once you find the bed and once you've gotten in it or you've stood around it is the deer ever going to come back to that bed because now it smells like you is it still going to come back? It doesn't really care that it smells like you. And now are you setting up in a spot that's near it? How do you pick the spot that you're setting up that's near it? If so, or are you going to leave it alone? I don't, I don't know. 
what's going on? I mean, I'd say there's no there's no question while you're hunting you're going to find beds. Like yes. if you're moving through different spots, you're you're going to find deer beds. Hopefully, if you're hunting a bedding area, it's well, it's going to be something that you either have I guess pre-scouted on a map and you're like yep. just using your hunter knowledge, you're like good intuition, you're like yeah, there's going to be deer bedding there, but and I know you do a lot of this, Eric, but you found those places well before the season started. Yeah. Yep. So, like, I, I think a really good example of this is last year I had an Illinois tag, and I went down there the weekend before Illinois opened up. It was the only chance I had to scout the property. It was a uh, less than 1,000-acre piece, went in there, and I got maybe about, like, a couple hundred yards from where I parked a vehicle, and I, and I was walking into a wide-open CRP field, wanted to get on the back side of that. I'm burning really quick through this, and all of a sudden I see tines in the CRP and there was a buck bedded right there. That buck, so I w- was definitely watching me, saw me come in, got to like 30 yards. If I would have had a bow, if the season would have been open, could have probably killed that deer. He blew out of there like a, you know, just totally 100% saw me, smelled me, knew I was a threat, those three things, and he was gone. I went over to that bed, I marked it on a map immediately, and then based on that, I, I thought, okay, that deer saw me in this bed. It saw me in that bed because it was watching an access trail that I obviously used. So now you got to get... That's Wait, where, did the deer see you? When you walked up and you saw the deer, was it in its bed yep. or was it... Okay. It was laying down in its bed. Gotcha. I, have, I have video stuff of this that we can post. So it saw me, got out of there, and uh, now right away, like, okay, that's a spot where a buck is. You got to figure out how to hunt it, but you can't come in the access trail. So that's where you got to get creative. In this place specifically... There is a ditch, a really big ditch behind this area where the buck was bedded that you could have taken to, to access it. That would have turned it into about a, like a mile walk in, which if you take the access trail, it's like a quarter of a mile. So yeah. it turns it way more into like a, a hassle for you. So I think once you find those beds, you start thinking big picture. How can I get to this spot where the deer obviously is looking this way with this wind, this wind that I'm suspecting, or like in that time, when, when you blow a deer out of an area right away, that's a good tip. Think about, okay, the deer is looking this way and the wind was doing this, because that way you now confirm the, the conditions where that deer wants to be in that location. So I had that, obviously, because I saw the deer in the bed. And you usually assume the deer is going to go back to the spot, even though it saw a threat at that spot? Because it worked. It was a good thing that, like, that buck being there bedded and spooking, even though he got spooked, like, he had a threat come in, he lived to see another day. So his bedding Uh location theoretically worked. Oh, he confirmed in his head, I'm in the right spot because I didn't die today. Exactly. He knows to be cautious. Yep. Exactly. So he's probably not going to go gallivanting right back in there. But that's still an ace in his back pocket. He knows he can effectively lay in that location watch this place and escape out the back door. You know, it's like, it's like if you're, uh, I, you know, think about like the, the wild West. Yeah. Or Al Capone. Like, (laughs) like I think about wild West, like my wife and I were in South Dakota at some of the places where all those like old West gunfights would take place. A dude can be sitting there playing cards at a whiskey table, watch the main entrance to the saloon and get out the back door before the, like whoever's after him even lays eyes on him. Noted. All right. Now I'm following. That's the part that I was, I was trying to figure out. I was like, well, if you find the buck bed, and you, so what? I felt like they would just move, but no, that makes yep. sense. Well, and that's a good thing to remember, too, Like, because I know I've been there in the past where you jump a buck up, and you're like, it's over. I blew it. He's gone. I've ruined everything. 
I'm a horrible, horrible person. I'm not that good looking. <laughs> uh, yeah, but in reality, it but just started. In reality, it just started. And you've got a big piece of knowledge yep. to use to your advantage the next time. And and I'm not going to claim this one at all. And actually, I've never even successfully done it. But you hear Infault talk about that, just that bump say, and dump strategy. Yep. Or the THP guys, yep. hunting public guys, they talk about it too. Where they jump a buck, if they or if they jump a buck, they'll set up in that spot and occasionally kill that deer like even yeah. that night right are you, are you saying they set up in the spot where they bumped it or yep. they move yeah. to a they'll different... move they'll probably move maybe 40 yards downwind like ever so slightly because they're they're working under the assumption that 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 buck it worked the bed worked they're gonna come yeah. back to that so but that buck isn't gonna just walk in looking around it's gonna walk in downwind so they might set up 40 yards downwind of where they just bumped that deer. And actually, like, in 2017, Aaron and Zach had a hunt that we can post a link to in Missouri where literally a deer did exactly that. They bumped it on, on a river bottom, made a quick switch, and that deer came right back, like, several hours later. Yeah. Like, huge, huge buck. You know, I should say, and I mean... Which is the part that really matters. Yes. Let's be <laughs> The hugeness. Thanks, Eric. Yes. Thanks, Eric. I may have even brought this up on another podcast, but it's really only one time, actually, I guess I have experienced seeing that happen, and it wasn't in Nebraska River Bottom. Um, my buddy and I, we bumped this really nice buck, mm-hmm. and uh, actually just sat down in that spot, and that evening, that same buck came back, and I uh, had him at last light. It was like a 60-yard frontal, and I was just like not super confident in the shot, yeah. so I didn't take it. Yeah. But it was cool to see that play out, though. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, too, like, was did he come back in downwind of where he was, of where you guys bumped him? <laughs> that was a while ago. Okay. It was a while. He, you know what? I, I'd say that he came back from the way he left. Oh, okay. It was almost like on the same trail. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was interesting, huh? Hmm. Cool. So that's beds. You yes. Know? I, you know, I think that's a great way to find deer and then start like hunting them effectively. I think that's the most effective way to do like a DIY style hunt. You know, yeah. like you'll hear a lot about, oh, hunt over the food source. I don't know about that on Is that a where DIY hunt. talking about like just find the farmland. Yeah, find the farmland, find the acorns, find the, you know, cut cornfield or standing beans. That's where also you're going to run into a million other people. Yeah. And the deer flat out, and in my experience, aren't going to be walking around in broad daylight. What you've described thus far sounds a lot like it's on the ground. Yeah. So you're saying you're walking around, and then you bump a deer, and then you set up. Where does the tree stand part come into play? So, like, how do how do tree stands play? It's like the number one thing you hear about all the time. Yep. Is everybody talking about being in a tree stand. Yep. And and be, the reason that that is, I think, in my opinion, is because that's usually where like where it goes down. That's where you end up killing a deer from. So if you bump a deer, you put when you say you're setting up, are you then putting up a tree stand near where you bump that deer or 40 yards downwind or whatever? Or are you still on the ground or It depends, I would say. Like, yeah. you know, in uh I know the the hunting public guys, those guys are doing a lot of ground hunting because they're hunting a lot of marshland where they have a lot of like tall grass that they can use a ghillie suit. We don't have a ton of that in like in hill country. We don't have a lot of like marsh grass where you can yeah, nestle okay. into. So in that situation it would be a tree stand. Okay. But you know, a lot of times you'll have these locations in mind. And then you'll get in there, whether that's during the daytime for an afternoon hunt or you're going in in the pitch black and then you're hanging your stand, which is a big safety thing to keep in mind for people that haven't done it before. And, you know, I think 
figuring out what kind of system you want to use to get up into an elevated position is another thing mm-hmm. for people to keep in mind because there's just so many different options out there. And it, like you hear the term, oh, hunt out of a tree stand. They, anyone can just go on their local retailer website, type in tree stand and buy the first thing they see. But it might not be the best setup for like doing what's called like a hanging hunt. Yeah, mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways to be up in a tree. Yes. You're yes. Gonna, <laughs> there's a lot of ways. And you're going to want to pick a system that is, you know, as lightweight as you can get it and, you know, kind of purpose built for mobile hunting. Yeah. yeah. Unless you're pre unless you have the chance at pride yeah. where you're pre hanging something that's right. gonna be there forever. Yep. And and I'll throw this out there and you know, for a person who maybe hasn't been in a tree stand before, like before I moved to Nebraska, I'd never been in a tree stand in my life. And one thing that I noticed, at least a lot of the places that I've hunted whitetails, is it can be like pretty brushy. You got a lot of briars or trees or brush or this, that, the other. If you were to be on the and I'm not saying because a lot of people are hunting from the ground very successfully. In oh, fact, yeah. I think that's something we're going to be talking about here on a later podcast. Yep. But man, when you get into that tree, your shooting opportunities open up, and it's almost like just like a glassing knob, right? Let's say you're out west and you're on a glassing knob, you're going to be able to see deer from further away too. Either know that they passed by, uh, be ready if they're going to come by. Uh, you can just see so much better from that elevated elevated position. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, you're almost look. You're, you can shoot down into little pockets. Yeah. Of of uh, pockets. That's what it usually looks like openings. too. If you ever watch yeah. a video right. of somebody doing it, you can kind of see these pockets mm-hmm. below them. Yeah, and I think part of the 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 biggest thing when you're talking about mobile tree stand hunting that you got to think about is the act of actually hanging the tree stand. Literally, the most important thing, I think, is your safety system that you're using. You're going to want to use, like, some kind of full-body safety harness, but then the part that is even more important than that is to bring a lineman's belt. That's what goes from one hip around the tree, connects to your other hip. That way, even if you can literally hang the tree using, you know, both hands, your hands free, you don't have one arm on the tree, and you're trying to work your ass trap. That's not going to happen. Tried it. Yeah, you know, it's not 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 well good. You and know, it, it, Eric, it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. And how <laughs> lots high of are, swearing. How yeah. high up are you usually too trying to do that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times you're between fifteen and twenty feet up trying to work ratchet straps. So if you're doing that by just hanging onto a tree, that's a huge safety concern. So using that lineman's belt is going to allow you to stay connected, work hands free, work quieter, more efficiently, and you'll be able to hang that stand. And I mean. If it takes you, let's say it takes you a half hour to hang a stand, which is not good with, you know, one hand on a tree, it might take you five minutes to do that, you know, Mm -hmm. when you have your hands free and you're using a lineman's belt. Hmm. And And there's other options, too. You can use a climbing stand. Yeah. I mean, there's other systems out there. I'd say probably the most common, it seems to be the hang-on, though. Yeah, yep. As far as probably versatility and getting into, you know, a multitude of trees. Yeah, that's a good point, though. So, like, a a climbing stand, you're going to have to think about cutting off limbs or whatever or you're just looking for a straight tree and i know that's what you've used with good success yeah i mean i'd say fair yeah but um but yeah that's i generally use a climbing stand but also we live in an area or i I should say like where i hunted in nebraska and wisconsin which i guess are the two states i predominantly hunted whitetails we're blessed with a lot of trees 
that are conducive to using a climber. And even if you, do, you know, I always carry a saw in my, uh, like a handsaw in my yeah. cargo pocket. Like our little uh, cheap bone saw or exactly. whatever in our 10-minute talk. Yeah, pretty pretty similar. I mean, you know, Gerber makes one. Uh, Wicked Tree Gear makes yep. one. I've used both of them. But we're lucky, you know, generally you only have to. Straight trees. They've got straight trees. You're trimming two or three branches. Yeah. But, I'll, but then I'll, I'll flip side that and say sometimes I can't get as high as I want right. because eventually you run into a bigger one and yep. you're just like, nope, I guess this is as high as, as high as I go. Exactly. And the reason that I started using a, cl- uh, a hang-on stand is because where I live prior to Wisconsin in, in Iowa, everything is a gnarly white oak okay. with branches that start at eight feet. So you're not going to be able to get up there. And that's part of the the difference there is you'll be able to work around that using like a, a system with portable climbing sticks, whereas you'd be, you know, inchworming, picture that in your head, like inchworming up a tree in a, a climbing stand. Right. Whereas with portable climbing sticks, you can work around those branches and then tuck your hang on in between two limbs or something like well, that. Well, and you're likely to be able to get into a tree um, that has more back cover. Yeah. That's another problem that I've run into is, uh, you know, being a little bit too exposed and I've had deer spot me for sure. Yep, so. definitely. But there's pros and cons though. It's a lightweight, super fast, easy, simple system, yep. you know, but, Less there's, moving parts. but there's sacrifices with it, mm-hmm. with it as well. God, I was just thinking. Which one is that where it's the lightweight, easy, but sacrifice? That's Cl- the climbing Climber. Yep. Climber. Whereas a oh. lock on you, you got it. You're, con, you know, you're bringing in sticks. You're bringing in a stand. They make super lightweight. It sounds ones like out a there. lot of stuff. It, it is. is. How a much lot are you stuff. like? What does somebody look like when they're going into this thing? They look like a. So that's a great question because we were talking about that too. You got to think about how you're going to get this stuff in. A lot of Midwestern hunters, myself included, up until last year, look at these things like frame packs, and they're like, "Oh man, that's only for the Western guys." I went to a frame pack last year. I'll never not take that thing whitetail hunting because I could take my entire tree stand, which is a it's a lightweight about eleven pound hang on. It's a lone wolf alpha salt with some muddy climbing sticks. That stand is eleven pounds. Each stick, and I bring four of them, are three pounds. So. All in all, last year, my pack was 37 pounds, and you're taking that in and out of the woods all the time. So if you don't have an effective way to transport that, you're not going to want to go as far. You're going to be more uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about a a frame pack is if you do kill something in one of those areas where you're a mile from the road, Mm -hmm. a lot of Midwestern hunters usually drag out their deer. And West, yeah, they rarely like bone it out. Yeah, and and Western guys have way more experience with boning it out and stuff like that. That I think is one of the similarities. I think that's an overlooked tactic here in the Midwest. I, I th- always wondered if it was like illegal in the Midwest or something. Well, so you, yeah, it it is in some states, which it, is it, super weird. It is. So you in some interesting. Yeah, I I think I remember when I moved here because I was looking into that. Because I was like, oh, if I kill a deer back in here, I'm just going to cut it up. up. And yep. then and then it was like, oh, no. At, for a while, I think you could, what, you could cut them in half, Eric? You, yeah, And you. then that transitioned to, I think, five total pieces. I'm like, well, I've got four quarters, uh, potentially a neck roast. Maybe I want to cut the rib cage out. And I've got back straps and tenders. I, I've got way more than five pieces yeah. here, guys. Whoa. You know. What is it now? I don't know. So we're in Wisconsin, and last year we had, we, man, there was a really weird, like, so part of uh, hunting the Midwest is you're hunting CWD territory. Right. You, know, you can right, be. Right. Yeah, you can be. And here in Wisconsin, 
they had a law change last year that ended up not happening. They reversed the law change. But for a while, everyone was kind of in a frenzy because the the rule was you were going to have to quarter your deer and not let the spinal cord leave the county of harvest. And so obviously, if you're pulling your deer out whole, your spinal cord is coming with. So a lot of guys were kind of up in arms because they're like, oh, how am I going to do this? I've never quartered a deer before. I always just take it to the processor. Opens up a whole nother learning curve for people. People don't like change. And uh, the vocal majority there ended up getting that rule overturned. So now I believe we're right back to where you mentioned. I don't think you – I I think you actually might be able uh, – we're going to have to hit up the Google we'll have, machine. Yeah, yeah we'll let's have to look this Google one machine up before we tell people I, yeah. what they can and can't do legally. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, and then <laughs> and also, you know, this stuff changes year to year. We look, look, you look at a rule that was almost in, I think it was actually in place, essentially, yeah, and then all of a sudden became out of place yep. just, you know, really Within a week, moments right. before the season. Yep. Um, Surprise. The total, this is a total rabbit trail, but I was a little bit, what I didn't know is like, okay, yeah, I can, let's say I don't plan on mountain steer, but like, so then you've got the horns, which are yep. connected to the brain, which are connected to the spine. Like, you know, so now I have to take that to a taxidermist in the county. Like right. I can't take, anyway, I don't know. That's a whole nother, whole nother topic. Yeah. Where were we? Oh, I know. I was going to say one thing when we were talking about tree stands, you know, the different types of tree yeah. stands. So depending on what whitetail state you plan on hunting, look at what types of trees you're going to be in. Cause that'll help dictate what stand you need. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. You know, from a, a gear standpoint. Okay, you were talking about the frame pack. Yeah, so like a frame pack, that was a big change that I made last year, and I, I, I feel like that has worked out extremely well. Then you also, if you're if you live in the Midwest, you have a frame pack that you can take on your Western hunts. I I used the same frame pack that I used whitetail hunting on a mule deer hunt out in Montana last yeah. fall. Yeah. So you get dual mm-hmm. purpose stuff, which I think that same thing can also be said about apparel. Like the the misconception might be that you're not walking very far, so you don't need to think about layering or layering system or anything like that. And sometimes I, you aren't. Sometimes you're not. Yeah, for sure. But when you are, you definitely want to have a layering system in place where maybe you have like a lightweight puffy jacket, so, so some kind of like lightweight next to skin layer that's going to wick moisture and sweat as you get warm. Non breathable chest chest waders. There yes. You go. Yes. If, if you're me. No. <laughs> no. Just kidding. Yep. So there's a, I, I really do think there's a lot of carrier crossover there in gear. Well, and yeah, that's, that's, think, that's actually like, that's a really handy thing for a person making that west to east transition. Yeah. You don't really need another gear set. No. Or as yeah. le- at least as far as apparel. In fact, I mean, that's what I wear 99.9% of the time. It's almost like I pack super layered with all of my. Western hunting apparel, including yep. waterproof uh, gear in yep. the event of inclement weather, which we often get yep. uh, during our deer season out here. Yep. And like you said, you may walk in light, but again, co- going to your backpack, yep. you need a place to stuff all your extra clothes because when you get there, you're probably going to have to bundle up to the point where it'd be like, you'd be bundled up to like your coldest day that you were anticipating hunting out yeah. west. Oh, I've seen some people get bundled up out here in their tree stand. They look like a freaking Michelin man. Yeah. Literally. I mean, they're wearing I mean, like... That's about how it... They're wearing some some serious stuff. A lot of people just go hunting in their snowmobiling yeah. clothes. Oh, too. yeah. Well, um, and then around a, here. almost even an extra layer for uh, to that, for lack of a better term, because it's a complete pun, would be <laughs> um, once you get to your hunting spot, right? Like, 
you're not going to be moving for a long time. So you're not going to have the luxury to stretch your legs if you were hunting from the ground or maybe even go on yeah. like a 15 minute hike or, oh, I'm going to walk over here and I'm going to glass on the other side of this knob, get the blood moving. Like you're yeah, probably going to be stuck. stopped for a yeah. while yeah. Without, without the option to move. So you almost need to plan on dressing or at least having the ability when you get there to dress a little bit warmer than you might. Yeah. Definitely. Doing a quick switch from third to fourth gear here, or maybe fourth, third, whatever. Classic, uh, Jim. I did myself have to acquire some new gear when the turkey hunting came up. Mm-hmm. I found like the whitetail hunting; it was the same stuff that I used out west. Yep. But then when turkey hunting came around, I had to get some different stuff. I had to get what'd um, you get? I had to get a face mask. Oh, yeah. Yep. You know, like a camo face mask. I just had to get more camo stuff. Yeah. yeah. Which, I, which I don't know if that was, I don't know if that was purely based off of popular media selling me that I had to get more camo stuff when I'm hunting turkey or if it actually is true because their eyesight's so good. Oh, man, I don't, I don't know. I I had to get, all I know is that my face was really exposed. Face is a, so a I had good to one. Cover, big I had one. to cover yeah. that up. And then I got a couple of, uh, I got a couple of different pieces for camo. Yeah. Probably some lightweight, and super lightweight And I also got some stuff. like Illimitic stuff. Which is a good thing too, to keep which, in mind yeah, in the spring. Being in mm. spring. Yep. But yeah, I definitely think, you know, and I'd be curious here. Th- well, I would imagine that they would kind of replicate because we've talked about this, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of like the camo thing for turkeys is the, the hunting media selling us the, that camo. I wear camo myself too, so it's not like I'm out there trying to buck the norm, but I definitely think with a solid colored brown, green, tan, whatever shirt and and pants, but then as long as you got a, your your face and hands covered up, I think you're going to be able to stay hidden from turkeys. You can pro- you could probably get away with a fair amount. I mean, I know like Spoken I generally from two people who just have never tried it. Well, I always wear solid pants, but you're always sitting when you're turkey hunting, so I figure, like, whether I'm wearing gray pants or brown pants, they just look like a log. Yeah. And the foliage is generally high enough that you're half buried in it anyway. I think it just depends on time of year with that, too. I mean, we're totally switching. But, like, if there's a ton of foliage, you know, if the trees have popped, like, probably less of a big deal. Early on in the season when there's nothing, you probably want a little bit extra to break up your yep. outline. And that's another good point there is I don't care what you're wearing. If you got the sun at your back, you could be wearing a neon pink yep. suit and whatever the animal is that's coming in is not going to see you. Because think about the last time you drove home from work and you got the sun in your eyes. You can't tell the color of anything. All you see is yep. crazy contrast. So you'll hear this a lot in the turkey woods, but I think it also really applies to whitetails when it comes to stand selection. But if you hear a bird gobble, you're going to want to set up and get the sun at your back so you're in the shadows. And the, when that bird is looking to find you, it's looking into a lot of crazy contrast. Same thing. I keep that in mind with like a morning stand location. I'm going to want the deer to be walking west of that stand so they are blinded by the east rising sun if they're looking up at me and just flip mm-hmm. that for an afternoon spot where I'm expecting deer, you know, I'm going to want them east of me so they're looking up into the sun. Yeah, that's a good point. And also, too, does that also, when you mentioned crazy contrast, does that make you, does that make you ever choose any kind of gear that has a little bit of a breakup action to it? Rather than making you look like a perfectly human-shaped silhouette, making you look a little bit more like a bush. Yeah, I think ghillie suits are the best thing there. Like, and, and the other thing I think that's very telltale human is hats. 
If you if you're like walking around and you're trying to find someone on the ground, the first thing you're going to notice is the bill of their hat. So like if you are hunting on the ground, like if that's something that you're considering, just wear a beanie or like do something, you know, have crazy long hair like Zach from the hunting public. We've talked about those guys a bunch, but if you watch some of the stuff that they do when they're using these ground hunting tactics, they're not wearing the traditional stuff that you would when you're hunting from a tree stand or whatever, you know, it might switch it up a little bit. You know, but that's interesting to hear you say that because I always really like wearing a ball cap because it gives me an opportunity to shield my eyes a little bit. Like I can just dip my head and then I feel like I'm covering part of my face and I'm not like revealing like my eyeballs, which I like, I know I've had turkeys pick out my eyes before when, you know, they just cover their eyes so you can't see them. No, no. Ostriches definitely do. If I can't see you, you can't see me. (laughs) No, I mean, I've, that, that's actually a good point. Mark, I don't know. I, I didn't mean to um, liken your strategy to <laughs> a well, I'm just, I feel like, have you ever felt like a turkey, like, saw your eyeballs, and you're like, oh, yeah, I've, we just I, made eye contact, and now he's, like... I definitely looked down when I, like, when we were hunting with the born and raised guys this year, we had hens from literally, like, they were they were within five feet of us. Oh, and it's just like, yeah, and I'm not I, here. I, there was a point where, like, I remember kind of, like, trying to look away, and I looked, and everyone was looking at the ground. No one was looking at those turkeys. I looked them suckers right in the eye. Yeah. I them to know. They, <laughs> oh, they know. When they see me staring them down, they know. You, you mean They business. just don't move. They start shaking. Yep. <laughs> yep. Okay. Um, back to gear. Yes. So we've discussed the idea of frame pack. We talked about the apparel a little bit. It does tend to cross over quite yeah, well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what other kind of gears out there? You, so you've mentioned, I don't know if I'm steering the boat in the right direction. You guys are more pros than I am. But you've mentioned grunt call, rattlers. Oh, yeah. What's, yeah, what's this? yeah what's whitetails this? are definitely other... very receptive to calling. They are. So for all you, for all you uh, elk hunters out there, or at least archery elk hunters, you know, here's another critter you can chase that you can call them in you can yeah talk to definitely and talk i th- dirty to them yep yes and you know it's so like i always bring a grunt call yeah i'm hearing some buzzing too uh, that's my phone oh, Mark, that's <laughs> like the that's like the number one rule of podcasting it's but it's on silent it's not ringing <laughs> it's buzzing do you know how to put your phone on do not disturb what do you think jim <laughs> right, no, 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 no 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 here hold on this is oh don't just throw it in the corner no well, your phone is at 6% battery, too, by the way. <laughs> Let's just point that out. All right. There should be a way. I don't know how to swipe up. All right. You know what, Mark? We're doing, we're doing your way. It's on 6%. It's going to die look, soon. Anyway. Just put it in the pocket. Okay. Um, we're calling. Ahead. We're calling. Calling, calling white Talking dirty to him. Yep. I definitely think one thing you don't want to leave home without is a grunt call. That's something that, you know, is going to – it's super – conversational. I think people would actually be surprised how frequent deer actually grunt. You mm-hmm. know, if you spend a lot of time with with bucks, you know, fairly in close proximity, regardless of the time of year, you're going to hear grunts, you know, that, and, and it might not be like your, your stereotypical rut, like, you know, like guttural roar almost, yeah. but you'll hear subtle grunts. And I think it's like a social thing mm-hmm. that, that they do. Rattling, I think that's I kind of think it's overused. I still bring rattling antlers just because I you know, I can't not bring them. You right. know, it's as soon as soon as I don't bring it, I'm gonna wish I had them, and it's one extra thing. But you know, I, I feel like I spend a ton of time in the whitetail woods. I've seen literally 20 years of being 
it, it, like deer hunting, I've seen maybe three buck fights, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I don't, I think, I think rattling might be something that gets overused. What, like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, so personally, you know, particularly for kind of like run and gun type setups where, you know, or I'm generally not going to the same spot, whatever, I find rattling antlers. Although probably valuable, I find them cumbersome and yeah. kind of a pain. Even if you got a backpack, they don't fit in your backpack. And they're that loud. Great. They're loud. Regardless they of what can, you have. You yeah. know, it's an extra thing to get in the tree. It's an extra thing to hang in the tree. I'm not saying, I'm not saying at all don't bring them because I think they are extremely valuable. Yeah. And I think if you can make it work, and I know some guys that have tons of yep. success rattling bucks. In fact, that's like their go-to yep. every year, right? But like you said, the, if I was going to pick something I wouldn't leave home without a grunt call. It's compact. It's easy to use. It's easy to master. You can pretty much, you know, if you can blow into a straw, you can make a grunt call work. And I guess not a pro tip because I'm not a pro at this, but what I do, they generally have a lanyard that you hang around your neck and I actually tuck mine behind my bino harness. Yeah. So it keeps it always at the ready. It stays put. It's not swinging around. Heck, you can even use it hands-free if you just slide it up a little bit. You can tip your head down into it. That is a pro tip. So... That's my grunt call tip. Yeah. Mark the pro tipper. Yep, exactly. So (sighs) another thing I think, you know, we'd want to talk about not gear related is situational tactics. You hear a lot of people like tree stand is definitely going to be your primary method of hunting. But I also think there's something to be said. If you are someone coming from out west and you want to deploy a mobile hunting strategy, I definitely think that there is a place for it, whether you're in a place where you can see or not. Like, if you're in thick timber, I still think you can do, on a windy day, I'd be curious to try this. I haven't myself. I've been in situations where we're tracking deer during those conditions. Like, you maybe someone hit one or whatever, and you're following a blood trail. And it's crazy how many deer you'll sneak up on yep. yeah. in, in that kind of scenario. I think, I mean, that's, and I know, like, that's something that I've wanted to try more of, but you kind of get entrenched in your tactics and what worked the last time, and you're like, well, I'm pretty good at this. Right. And then I guess, you know, other things also, sometimes these pieces aren't that big that we're hunting. Yeah. So you don't have a lot of room to move around. Yeah. So we're, as we come up on an hour here, I know we're going to go over an hour. So if you're listening now, stay buckled because we're going to keep you here for a bit longer. But I want to, I want to discuss. Uh, the obligatory optics discussion yes. should come up as far as gear goes. And and after that, if I'm giving you a teaser within the episode, we would be remiss to not discuss deer drives. Sure. Yes. So, but okay, let's talk optics here real quick first. Optics for this kind of a hunt versus your Western hunt. Somebody comes over, they're fully kitted out for a Western hunt, and they come over to the Midwest. Can they just use their gear as is, or are they going to need to get something new? I'd say they're probably good to go. Yeah. I, w- uh, I would tend to agree with you unless your rifle scope is pretty high, Meg. Yeah. Like a 6 to 24, I, I just think is too much. Yeah, yeah if you're, totally. You're, if you're, you're rifle almost hunting, never going to bring it above that 6. I crank mine. I've, I've put her at 16 a few times, but I've, had, I've taken some... De- I think the uh, I killed a buck last year at 2.30, and the year before I killed one at 3.30. Mark... Cranks it, Boardman. Yep. But also, <laughs> that doesn't sound good. That Mark, would have been totally big, sufficient with like, yeah. you know, a, yeah. a three to nine yeah. by forty. You Mark, to big numbers, Boardman. That's <laughs> what I found about Mark. Mark loves himself a big old objective. He loves himself some big old magnification, within reason. Big old scope tube, and you love yourself a big old three hundred wisdom. A f- yes. <laughs> I won't dispute that. Uh, a four to sixteen is like kind of like my max yeah. for max for Midwest. Yes. But here's what I like about that, and that's why I like about 
out west, and I've said this before, yep. you want to shoot deer in a tree stand, you're good. You want to go shoot an elk at 600 yards, you're good. Yep. Yeah, that's you fair. Know? That's fair. So, same goes for the two and a half to ten by four. I was going to say Mark that. Does, which Mark does not like as much as the four to sixteen because it's not as big. Fair personal preference. Uh, the two and a half to ten by be my four is the scope that I recommend <laughs> to most people. Oh yeah, it, literally, if they just say I'm going hunting, what do I need? Two Vibrate and a half to ten. By 4 to 4. Um, yep. Yes, a very common configuration over here in, in Wisconsin, of course, in the Midwest, is the old three to nine by forty. It has been the standby for many, 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 many years. Fun fact: there are literally so, like, if you're planning to be like on a, some states in the Midwest that are affected by chronic wasting disease, have like deer sniper teams. Yes, part of the prere- prerequisites to be on a deer sniper team is a, th- a minimum three by nine by forty rifle scope. Minimum. Minimum. Yeah, man. Minimum. <laughs> you know, but when I grew up hunting in Washington, of course, I was growing up, I grew up hunting blacktail, so I guess <laughs> I guess some similarities as far as shot distance is yeah. here. Three to nine, that's what everybody had. Yeah. Three to nine gets it done. Yeah. Yeah. And three to nine, four to 12, there's a reason those two are probably the most popular around here configurations. And a BBC reticle is pretty much all you need because you got to just have, you know, capture it, set it, and forget it at 100 yards yep. zero. Kentucky windage beyond that. Kentucky baby. windage beyond that. Binos. A set of eight by forty twos is what we tend to prefer, but Mark is gonna immediately look at the face right there. He's already telling me ten by forty twos, man. They're gonna be your option because you can use them around here. You can use them out west. Okay, 10 is just a nice power to. Ha- I'm sorry, I'm looking. I'm putting- so you are, but you're they're actually the exact words that were gonna come out. Of my mouth. <laughs> so, but yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. Like if I was just gonna hunt the Midwest, I'd be like, dude, eight by forty two all day long. Yep, but yep. just because. That's what I have, and because it is so versatile, yeah. I generally use like if I'm going to go archery elk hunt, I'm going to have a ten by forty two. If I'm going to hunt deer around here, I carry a ten by forty two. Yeah, yep. Um, I'd agree. Range finder is important to have. Yes, yes. Yeah, range finder is always important to have. have. It's always important to have, especially yeah. though considering a range finder with angle compensation, which all of ours do when you're shooting out of tree stand. Yep. That's not always something that people take into consideration, but it's very, very important. And another thing is, you know, like, so last year I I had a Ranger 1300 that I was using. Yeah. And th- so I, I had an Impact 850 before that. Impact 850 is a great, great range finder, especially if you're trying to keep the cost low and ever, or your, your budget-friendly option. That's it. But it has a black reticle. The Impact has it's a... It's not illuminated. Yeah. Yes. So the 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 ranger has that illuminated red reticle. A lot of times, your shots on a whitetail are going to be those waning hours on the front or back end of daylight. Being able to like get that super clear red, like it's yelling in your face, it's thirty six yards. You know, yeah. like that helps a lot. Red reticle. Yes. Red reticle. <laughs> What's that movie where it says red, red rum? Red rum. What yeah. is that? Um, well, it's murder spelled backwards. Red but... rum. Oh right. Oh red, yeah. Red rum. Every time I hear red reticle, I think it's of it. the shining. The shining. Oh, that's what it yep. is. Um, I, yes. So, okay, we've discussed optics mm-hmm. I think, quite well. Discussed that's murder. pretty much all you need. Yep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Should we talk about deer drives? Oh yeah. You know what? Let me go real quick all right, into go. something else, you and go. it goes back to like the mindset, you know. And I talked to a lot of. I'll go back, and I maybe have talked into this talk to this experience before, but the first time I hunted deer out of a tree stand, I was like, man, I'm used to being on the ground, being able to move. Like I'd seen what I'd seen on television. And I'm like, is this even going to be fun? And it is fun. So I'm going to throw that out there. No, that's a good thing. That's a good thing to point out. For some reason, it gets the idea that it isn't fun. Right. Like that. It's just, 
it is an obligatory killing once a year. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. oh, fall, everybody just robotically gets up out of their seat, puts their camo on, walks to a tree stand, kills something, walks back, and then they suddenly wake up from blackout, and then, oh, oh, okay, that was hunting season. I guess that's over. We'll just right. go to the next one. Yes. Right. But, I mean, I was even talking, like, so there's that, and then there's also fun from the, like, man, I'm going to be in one spot forever. Yeah. You know, and, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. And it, it, people often that I talk to out with are like, oh, man, I just, I can't sit for that long. Like, I don't want to be in one spot for that yeah. long. And I guess my argument is, like, so what do you think a glassing knob is where you post up for half the day right. or all day? Like, right. it's basically a tree stand on the ground. Yeah. I mean, granted, you're a little more freedom. You could probably stretch your legs a little bit, but... Oftentimes, you're sitting in one spot for a half a day, sometimes an entire day. Sometimes, you know, depending on the hunt, you could be in the same spot for multiple days. Yeah. Yep. So, there. True. Yeah. No, it's a good thing to bring up, Mark. Definitely. I mean, when we were when we were bear hunting in Idaho, we literally sat on a glassing knob all day. All day. And that, like... We put our chips into sitting, that spot that day. You're yeah. sitting at one spot all day waiting for something to walk out. Yep. What's mm-hmm. the difference? There isn't one. Right. Deer drives. Yeah. I know you want to hit those. Well, I want to hit it because it's you can't you can't talk about Midwestern whitetail hunting without, without and and even if it's not something can that you, you imagine an elk drive. Even fact. if it, <laughs> even <laughs> if it's not something that you decide that you're going to do, there will be a time where people are either talking about doing it or you run into a deer drive going on and you're wondering what the heck is going on here. Yeah. What are they talking about? And yep. Eric Explain it. Explain what this is to for somebody who's coming from out west. So your quintessential deer drive involves a group of pushers who are people that are walking through cover where deer are suspected to be hanging out and another team of posters who are hanging out on the suspected exit trails. Yeah, now let's just reemphasize that word. It is posters. Yes. There's no CH in there. Yes, yes, exactly. Minus the CH plus the ST. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, <laughs> I just I just want to make that very clear in case somebody misheard that posters, yeah, like the thing you hang on your wall. Yep. So, Mark, I'm trying to make sure people don't think we're saying poachers. Oh God, I sorry. Like I the spelling. Got yeah. It. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the pushers will walk through the area. They'll be you know blowing their scent through there. They'll be disrupting the area. They're trying to they're, bump deer. They're trying to bump deer, and. You know, a lot of times that leads to deer boogieing out of those bedding areas pretty quick, and they're hitting the the most convenient exit trails, and that's where you're going to have your other people, like, kind of standing by waiting to shoot those deer escaping their bedding location. Yeah. Lots of stuff to keep in mind there with safety. You don't yeah. want to be shooting. A well-orchestrated drive. People think about, like, a deer drive, and they think, like, the the clampets are now just running the the swamp down off of whatever country road. Oh yeah, a well executed. Everybody's getting shot at. People yeah, are just narrowly missing bullets. Which I mean, it definitely gets definitely happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not all of them are the stereotypical or what you might be thinking. Right, of hillbilly uh, sling fest. Yeah, because a, a well executed deer drive like really is a work of art. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a great tactic around here, and, and it works very well. And there's other ways to do it that are less aggressive than a deer drive like we've had the the wind bump discussion which mm-hmm. is essentially a, a deer drive on a 
uh, more conservative scale where you're rather than like physically walking through the bedding area, you're Clay walking and pots on pots and pans yeah. and all that. Yeah, rather than doing that, you're walking on the upwind side, letting your scent drift into it, and then the deer naturally like slowly walk out. Yeah, they smell something, they just want to check it out. Right. Rather than, oh my gosh, holy crap, they're here! Get out! It's alien <laughs> versus predator. I'm yes. getting abducted. They've like they've been essentially bothered versus like stepped on yes yeah. which like literally you can almost step on deer i mean oh yeah because oh, yeah. that's <laughs> something that happens we discussed that too where some sometimes actually a rather smart deer will oh, understand yeah. what's happening and it will stay put even though absolute chaos is encroaching on it yep it'll stay put and you will people will literally walk by within feet of deer yeah, laying right next crazy. to it yep. in some thick stuff and occasionally step on deer yeah, and then that, and then at that point, there's out of there. Yeah, <laughs> usually I gone would say, unless fast, it's, unless it's dead or yep. it's CWD. But uh, <laughs> so I'm gonna throw this out there because we've thrown out, you know, like I hear Ryan talk about, you know, a deer drive and kind of throw out the, the this classic to me, which is an exaggeration of like banging pots and pans. Like, have you ever like actually? Because okay, I'll say this: I've never personally encountered that or participate. I've participated in deer drives, but they've never been that like that. Like I'd say they're either kind of like the wind bump type thing yep. or small scale deer drives or even more aggressive ones, but still like not like all out pots and pans. Right. I think it happens. It, it definitely happens, but there's just so many other ways to do it too. Like, you know, and you don't need a huge team of people to, to execute a deer drive. When my dad and I used to hunt together up in Northern Wisconsin, we would, we didn't even, I don't forget what we called them, but we would literally like just leapfrog each other. You know, like we would start out, someone would make a big loop. It, it might take them 45 minutes to an hour to get mm-hmm. from like that person's six o'clock location working around counterclockwise or clockwise to their 12 o'clock location. And then we'd sit there, we'd wait an hour. And then, you know, like if my dad just did that, I would do the exact opposite, and I would go what the opposite of him and get to his twelve o'clock mm-hmm. location. And of course, did you guys like kill you some said, deer doing that? We did, yeah. And like yep. you said too, I mean, safety is obviously critical, so you got to really think these things out. And communication between yep. people is is profoundly important because obviously you don't want to be pointing a gun because when a deer pops out, if a deer pops out, it can be very exciting. And you know, sometimes hopefully you're thinking about it, but right. You know, it's, people can make mistakes. Don't get tunnel vision. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's pretty well pretty important. Orchestrate the drive so nothing bad is going to happen, you know, yes. so a person right. isn't going to be in the line of yeah, fire, you, <laughs> but also have that communication, but obviously at times communication breaks down or plans change or somebody misunderstands, so yeah, don't get tunnel vision. Be yeah. safe. Yeah. Yep. And a lot of times too on a drive, people think that they're pushing deer in the direction they're walking. Right. But a lot of times deer squirt out the back. Definitely. So, yeah, that's a, that's an awesome point mm-hmm. because, you know, someone might be thinking that, oh, man, I get to post on, on the, I'm a poster on this drive. And then someone on the other hand might think, ah, oh, I drew the short straw. I'm watching the exit. Tr-. You know, the, I'm watching where these guys just walk. There's no way. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I think that's where deer are going to yeah. escape. Sometimes people will even, if you're hunting and you're not part of a drive, but you hear the, you know, hey, hey, yep. you hear people kind of giving that off, they'll go and find, they'll sit, sit up behind them. Oh, yeah. Just let a deer squirt out the back of that drive. Mm-hmm. 100%. Then, yep. I also wonder, you know, we talk about these deer that stay put, you know, that hang tight, that probably are getting walked by. Yeah. I wonder if they're just walking out the back door. Yeah. You know, you get, you get 50, 100 yards ahead of them, and they just... 
you know, not even running, just right. slipping. Yep. Or if they even leave. Yeah. Maybe they don't even leave. Yeah. Distinct. I don't know because I didn't see him. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> Great point. Yep. Did we just? Did, what do you think? Did we explain pretty much? I don't I even say so. did we explain everything, but at least some is that stuff. a pretty good gist? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a pretty good gist. You need a spot. You need some specialty gear, but a lot of your hunting gear doubles up. Yep. And it's not what you're seeing on TV. That's the big thing that I think we got to get across. You see people naming their deer all the time, like on TV and all that. Nothing if, wrong with no, it. Nothing wrong with that. But like, actually, that's, I was watching the Drury's on TV. Yeah. The other day, and actually, some very, like some awesome deer information. I don't get to hunt exactly the way they do, but it's but good info. Some good info. Yeah. For sure. And there's a fine line between the tactics that you might see on TV, between what's like portrayed on your average public land DIY deer hunt. But there's always going to be tactics that you can pull from some of these resources mm-hmm. that you can find out there to deploy on these things. You Mark, know, I was giving you a funny look because never to be contrarian, Mark Boardman. Am I contrary? Am I contrary? No, never, never to be. Oh, Mark was like, "Well, you're not. You know, it's not everybody names deer out here. They're not that there's any, not that there's anything wrong with it. Right. But you're not wrong. Well, I don't you're think not there wrong. is. I just, I, I, that's the reason I was giving you a funny look. You were looking over at me like you just said. Thought I, I know, naughty word. Said something about your sister or something. Uh, um, yeah, no, all all is good there. But uh, to your point, Eric, it's not always like what you see on TV. Yeah, and I think there's stuff you can pull from. Like you know, there's a lot of uh, you know food and you know food plots. This out there, like if you're hunting public, you're not going to have a food plot, right? Right. But and I feel like one thing that gets touted from the rooftops, you know, and and us included, me included, like I am. So don't take this. I am 1,000 a proponent of public land. Yeah. Celebrate it, hunt it, I use it, we need to keep it, we need to make more yep. of it. However, private land boundaries is the, reality. is the reality, and I use my knowledge of public and private boundaries, and that does become part of my hunting strategy, mm-hmm. yep. um, including agriculture that's taking place on private land. So I might be able to get into a spot that is public, but I know there's a private boundary on the backside that might have some egg, and then I can develop a hunting strategy around that. Oh, so that's very yeah. true. so very I'd true. say public private land is important too. And actually, I've hunted a lot of private land, and it's that's fun too. So. Right, right, exactly. It's all about what you can get access to and what you can... Like, I, I honestly would put a private land on permission hunt in the same bucket that I'd put a public land hunt. Yeah. Because... You got permission. Who's to say that six other people that knocked on the door don't also have permission? Unless you own it, you don't control anything. Yep. You know, that would be my thoughts. And even if you own it, there ain't no guarantees. Yeah. Yep. I think you guys all just did some great last calls. My I last think call so too. is going to be when you're here, also check out the small game hunting. Yeah. Because I think that that is a phenomenal yep. squirrels, rabbits. Yeah. The waterfowl. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think there's lots of stuff to hunt. Hunt it. Yep. Lots of stuff to lots of stuff to hunt. Hunt it. Yep. If you have any other questions about this transition, hit us up. Yeah. If we didn't cover something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I that's, think we're that's always thinking in reverse of this. Yeah. So, so now I actually had to. Maybe I don't know. Maybe there's a part two that we need to do. I think. There but might we can only two. do it with your feedback. So yes. let's end it at that. And uh, happy hunting and shooting out there, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. See ya. Bye. 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 All right. That'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. 
Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show. Maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like. So that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released. So that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you can take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.